Hey folks, welcome to this week's podcast as we listen to the Soulful Strings version of Groovin', one of the Rascals' 18 top 40 hits. They had five top 10 hits and three giant number one hits and spawned lots and lots of uh, covers. Really just an amazing band, interesting records, a lot going on there. Uh, Felix Cavallari on tour with Mickey Dolan's Check Felix Cavallari Music.com for information. A super nice guy. We get the story a little bit behind how all this happened. Uh, and that's about it. Keep your eyes on WFMU.org slash Michael for a list of upcoming guests. And if you donated to our fundraiser recently and you got a brand new set of Michael Shelley Show coasters, please take a photo of those coasters in use somewhere in your your space and send them to me, Michael S at WFMU.org, and I will put them on a future playlist for this program. All right? Here is me and Mr. Felix Cavallari. Okay, that is The Rascals, and as I've been telling you, Felix Cavallari and Mickey Dolan's Friday, next Friday, June 3rd at the Palladium in Times Square. Felix, good morning, and welcome to the program. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm totally, I've been into like a whole Rascals overload this week, and, <laughs> you know, I mean, I remember these songs from AM radio as a kid, and but, you know, it occurs to me that The Rascals are one of the most important American bands ever. Do you feel that? Do you look in the mirror in the morning and go, hey, Felix, you were part of one of the greatest American bands ever? Well, that's a really good question. I don't know what I feel when I wake up in the morning. I'm just happy to get up, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I don't know. I mean, like I say, you know, when you when you look at the calendar and you look at how many years ago that was, yeah. and the fact that a people still know the music, b they're still coming to the shows, uh, it just feels great. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to tell the story. A long story short. You correct me if I'm wrong. You you uh, grew up in you born in Pelham, New York. You studied piano. You're playing in bands. You go to Syracuse University. You leave and take a job with the Starlighters. Through that, you meet Gene. You meet Eddie, whose older brother David is in that band. And then you join up with Dino and you form the Young Rascals. Is that a close history? Man, you just went. Through my whole life, just <laughs> yeah. think, yeah, well, right through it. Thank exactly. you for being on the show, and good luck with the gig. No, so okay, let's talk about those days. Those days before the band got signed to a record deal, how did mm -hmm. it? How did it bubble up? Did you guys sit down and have a meeting and say, "This is how we want to sound, and this is how we want to look," or did it just happen? Well, you know, uh, basically, I, uh, you know, I had an idea. Uh, and the idea was, I, I had gone to this uh, club uh, when I was 16. I, you know, basically I had only listened to classical music. And, but I, I, I found out about rock and roll through a dear friend of mine and never had heard it. And then I went to this club uh, and it was had a, a trio, an organ trio, which consisted of three pieces, an organ, the guy was playing bass. He was playing, you know, uh, rhythm. He was singing. He was doing solos, uh, uh, a sax and a drum. And I said, man, that instrument is an orchestra. That's mm. what it is. So I, I went on a kind of like a quest, you know, to try to find out, A, where I could get one, B, how I could learn to play one. So I, I really thought that the sound of the group should be uh, an organ-based rock band with great voices. So the concept was there from the beginning, 
and it evolved. I mean, because first of all, I had a great drummer. Dino Donnelly was just phenomenal. Yeah. You know, had excellent singers. You know what I mean? Gene Cornish was, was a more than adequate guitar player because people tell me who are guitar players that, you know, he was perfect for the group. You know, uh, and so uh, it just happened. Now, we had a record deal within six months of our inception. That's crazy. So let me just run you back for one second. You had never heard Chuck Berry, Elvis Presley, Little Richard? Not until I went to uh, junior high and somebody asked me, do I like rock and roll? And I had never heard rock and roll because, you know, when you when you, when you study classical music, uh, basically, they, they don't they they really don't want any type of outside influences. They want you to stick to, you know, the masters. So I was pretty sequestered. I had three lessons a week for eight years. Oh, my God. That's intense. And were your parents like Felix? We just been paying for all these lessons. What are you doing with this organ? Well, you know, circumstances uh, uh, predict different things. You know, like my mom, who is the real impetus behind this, she she was ill. You know, and, and so she, the, the 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 hammer was not on me. With all due respect to her, mm. I, I really appreciate the fact that she, uh, you know, really wanted me to do this. So I, I was. And my father worked all the time. So I mean, basically, I had free time to turn on the radio. You know, and I did. And it just, uh, it just uh, captured me for my whole life. The Little Richards, the Chuck Berry's, Jerry Lee Lewis's, Fats Domino's, they're playing the same instrument that I was learning on, but not the way I was playing it. <laughs> okay, so you mentioned the, the organ. I think you played the Hammond B3 organ. If people don't know what that is, because they imagine the keyboard that they see folks playing nowadays, this is a big thing. It's like a piece of furniture. It's heavy. It has a Leslie speaker that's giant. How did you get it, and you did you always play that did you always lug it around from gig to gig well chiropractors love me you know because <laughs> this, thing, this thing i'll be seriously no i i couldn't afford that uh, big one in the beginning it was uh it was about three thousand dollars and you know uh. the leslie was another thousand or something like that but they had smaller models and uh, it was adequate for what I was doing in the beginning, because uh, the beginning was uh, was college, was uh, you know a local band. Uh, I mean, excuse me, a college band. Uh, I played mostly piano, and then of course when I could, you know, get an organ, which was uh, later uh, in, in in the Casco Mountains, I, I got a, a, another model. Gotcha. Okay, so you guys are famous for getting together at the Choo Choo Club, which is not too far from here in Garfield, New Jersey. It's kind of a important place in history. There was this, uh, you know, baby boom scene, and all these 20-year-olds all of a sudden in 1965 or whatever were looking for something to do, and a lot of places like that kind of popped up, and the Rascals, bands like that, perfect, you know, just give the kids something to do. But it's so hard to imagine now. There's a room full of kids. They kind of are dressed in a way that I think is totally cool, and they're all dancing to a live band. Uh, tell me what the scene was like there. Was it, because I've heard it also it was a little bit of a rough place. Well, it may have been, but, you know, never to be. I mean, to, to us, it was, a, it was a, what they call a venue. It was a place to work. Hmm. And, um, you know, it was, was interesting because, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of talking about the, uh, the 60s, uh, the twist was kind of coming in and going, yeah, it was kind of coming in and people were learning about pop rock, you know, we were getting into like, uh, you know, the English band slowly, you know, and so the, the word band became a, a, a big word. And so, you know, now there's a there's 100 bands in every city. So it was kind of unique, you know, that we, we were a band that came from Jersey and New York. And they, 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 they embraced us. At your peak, how many songs did the band know? How many hours could you play? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Uh, 
we, we had a good repertoire because the fact that we came up, uh, you know, at a time when you had to play covers. You know, prior to, uh, oh, Beatles and Stones and uh, Dylan, uh, you know, you had to play covers in the club, covers by, you know, top 40 stuff. So we had a good repertoire. You know, we, we, we really had, knew a lot of songs. And, uh, you know, uh, most of us came up from playing for bar mitzvahs and proms and weddings and, you know, kind of things like that. So, so we knew a lot of songs. As far as how we, when we could stay on stage, I don't know. But we just rocked until they told us to go home, you know. <laughs> uh, was that place a mob place? That's, I have no idea. You know, I mean, I, I just, you know, went to work. You know what I'm saying? I, I, I went home and I got the heck out of there as soon as I can, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so if you played all night at a place like the Choo Choo, what did that pay? Do you have any, any remembrance? Jeez, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I tell you, I can't remember uh, because, uh, you know, I was kind of the paymaster. I, I, I had to drive the car with the uh, U-Haul in the back, and we had to cover expenses, pay everybody. You know, I, it was really nothing, you know. It, it, the idea was to be seen and heard. Hmm. You know, uh, we, you know, basically, we hit pretty fast. Within six months, uh, you know, this within two uh, the, after the first gig, which you're talking about, Choo Choo Club, this gentleman came in who had a discotheque in New York City. It was called Andines, and he uh, he he wanted to start a place out in the Hamptons in Long Island, and he wanted us to be the summer band. So we were we were pretty quickly escorted to you know like uh, a really interesting place with all kinds of record executives and movie stars. Uh, you know, which is the Hamptons. So we didn't really linger a long time in that club scene. Were you guys ambitious? Were you thinking, I'll be happy to make a living playing gigs? Or did were you guys thinking, we are going to make, you know, we are going to have 18 top 40 hits? <laughs> you know, thinking, thinking is a word in the 60s that didn't exist too much. There wasn't too much thinking, you know what I'm saying? And one day at a time. Doing. Yeah. More doing than thinking. First of all, everybody who I know who comes from that you know era, like I'm talking about groups like the Zombies and Ringo, and they love. Look, Paul is still out. Paul McCartney's still out. They're still out playing. You know what I mean? Hmm. Uh, it, it, it's in your blood, and you want to do it. You want to jump on that stage, and you want to play. And oh yeah, oh yeah, you want to make a living. But I mean, the bottom line is that, you know, there wasn't a big living to be made in those early days. There wasn't a big living to be made till, I believe, till Zeppelin came along. That's when the money started flowing. Hmm. The idea that you could charge more than, you know, 250 for a concert or whatever. Yeah. And now it's 250 for Paul McCartney anyway. Yeah. Oh, 250. You're lucky if you get in for 250. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you're in a different zip code. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, yeah he's, he, he's playing at um at Giant Stadium. I I got tickets because my daughter and you know she's I got to oh, take great. her. And you know it's it's eighty thousand five hundred people. Can you imagine? I mean, seriously, yeah. is that is that an well? Have you ever heard him live? Have you ever been to a McCarty show? About twenty years ago, yeah. Yeah, well, then, you know, I mean, once, once you get past the first 15 hits, you go like, oh, my God, how talented, how talented can one human being be? I, I mean, it's, it's incredible. His repertoire is just amazing, you know? Did you watch Get Back? Because, like, the thing that one of the things I took uh, out of watching it was if you didn't, you know, whether you like him or not, if you didn't know that he was a musical genius, you know it now, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, well, I watched some of it, you know, but I, I knew he was a musical genius uh, the first time, uh, you know, basically I heard uh, his music because, you know, uh, the output 
that that band had, I mean, first of all, they had three writers, you know, yeah. uh, three pretty good writers, too. One great, you know, uh, John, you know, we never really, really know his, uh, the extent of his talent, you know. Uh, but, uh, and then George was, was no slouchy. He had some great songs. That, that's quite a band there. Quite a yeah. band, quite a group. Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. So eventually, speaking of the Beatles, you meet Sid Bernstein, who helps you get signed to Atlantic. And as you said, it's less than six months. Boom, mind blown. Uh, One of the things that I'm guessing that you had a good contract is that when the first record comes out, it's produced by the Young Rascals. I mean, you guys were 20, 21 years old. So the fact that that's in the contract, I'm guessing it was a good contract. It was a fair contract. I mean, you know, it's never fair with the record company, but you know what I mean? In retrospect, <laughs> is, did yeah. you feel that way? I wanted to produce the group. You know, basically, I started off like thinking, uh, you know, uh, I, I analyzed like people like uh, Barry Gordy and uh, Phil Spector. And, 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 you know, what they were doing, which was producing, was uh, just musical arrangement, musical kind of, you know, uh, knowledge to put, you know, like uh, uh, music into a groove. I, I had to learn some technique. We had to learn some. But we had some two great gurus in the, in the studio, at Arif Bardeen and Tom Dowd. So Atlantic was the only label that would give us a permission to do it and I really wanted to do it and uh, you know as I say the good luck is to have those two gentlemen in the room which helped guided us through you know a lot of, a lot of the you know, things that you have to learn when you go from live to tape mm. in those days yeah well let's talk about how the record was made how long to record the songs how long did the how much experimentation was there and like you said how different was it from what you guys were presenting live well first of all atlantic atlantic was the only eight track in existence uh, i think les paul and atlantic developed an eight everybody else had four hmm. now we have unlimited in other words, you can record until you can't breathe. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, but in those days, you had to be selective as to what you were playing. There was no experimentation. You really didn't have you know, tracks for it. You didn't have room for it. Second of all, Atlantic Records was a jazz R&B label prior to us getting there. We were the first white group on uh, the Red and Black Atlantic label. So what I mean by that is the philosophy was go in the room, play, make it happen, I'll record it. So it was like an event which is what jazz is. Jazz is an event. It's a, it's a time piece, which is, you know, one of the albums that, you know, basically it's it, at this time you record this, this is it. And you could do it a couple of times, you know, but as far as doing overdubs and things like that, we were extremely limited. Today you could overdub forever, which is not exactly the best thing because sometimes, you know, like in the case of Good Lovin', you know, your first two takes are the, the ones that sold all the records. You know, you could, you could kill it by, by doing it over and over and over. Yeah. Uh, you, you said it. It was a number one smash hit. I mean, and it's such, it's not just a number one hit. You know, it's because there are number one hits that just no one remembers. You know what I mean? This right, record exactly. gets played over and over and over for eternity. So how did it change your world? How did... Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, it's the same as these, uh, these people who have just gone up to outer space, you know, uh, <laughs> Elon, yeah, exactly the same thing, you know. We, we saw the world from, oh, my God, look at that down there. Oh, my goodness. It was like a rocket ship going off. We had no idea. I mean, seriously, we put out a song called I Ain't Gonna Eat Out My Heart Anymore, which was the first release. Yeah. The second release is Good Love It. It's a multi-million seller. It still is. You can't 
you can't predict that. You know, the rocket ship went up and we took a ride. <laughs> did you guys deal? I mean, you were kids, you know, did you go crazy? Did you, were you did you have help? What happened? Well, that, you know, there's four, there was four of us, you know, and each person has their own story, you know. Mm. Uh, I was a little rooted more than the other guys. Uh, you know, I, I had the good fortune of studying with a guru, you know. Uh, as a matter of fact, in New York City, Swami Satchidananda, and he, he kept my, my feet on the ground. As far as the other guys taking off, um, I don't really think anybody really got too far out, you know. Mm. They, uh, we were working too hard. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, did you buy yourself a car or, you know, tropical fish, anything? <laughs> well, first thing I bought was a camera. I always wanted to get a Nikon. So mm. I brought me a nice Nikon F, which shows you how long ago that was. Yeah, I would love to see some of the pictures you took. So one of the interesting things about the, the first album, which is called The Young Rascals, is that there's only one original on the record, because soon you would really be known as a writer of, like we said earlier, some of the most right. memorable hits of the Top 40 era. So tell yeah. me about writing. At, mostly you wrote with Eddie Brigatti. Uh, tell right. me how the, the work was divided between the two of you, how long it took to write, you know, Beautiful Morning, or How Can I Be Sure, or People got to be free or grooving and uh right. did you just were you know not i think some people are surprised that somebody could write a song because it's the furthest thing that some people they just think i could never do it did you just know you could do it oh yeah because basically when you study music you, you know you, you you know what you're doing mm. you know what i'm saying i mean there's no substitute for for knowledge and you know, i don't care whether you're a painter you know uh or, or what, what is you're a carpenter you know you study uh, you study under a you know a, a tutor and you know you can build anything uh, I, I knew i could do it you know i just if can i do it and have hits who knows you know see the evolution was because as, as i mentioned before the clubs were 21 and over in those days and the proprietors the owners they they did not want to hear originals they wanted to hear what was on the radio. They wanted their audience to be very comfortable, to know that they could come in and dance to the hits. So we were not allowed. And then, of course, Dylan, Beatles, Stones, Kinks, you know, Love and Spoonful, everybody started writing their own songs. So I said, why the heck not? Especially when you have a number one record. Now we can write. So when they signed us, they signed us as a result of what they heard when we played, which were covers. Mm. Uh, so was there, when it came time to make the next record, and you guys recorded an incredible amount of product in a very short time, was there pressure like, hey, record a song that sounds exactly like Good Lovin'? You know what, man? They left us alone. They left us alone. As long as, you, as, long as you're making hits, they leave you alone. It's when, it's when you stop dropping that everybody comes and say, well, maybe, you know. And uh, so we were very, very fortunate to keep making hits. Because seriously, I mean, a record company, uh, Atlantic was a tremendously aesthetic label. I mean, I, I have to say thank you to all of those people. Fortunately, not, they're no longer with us. Because they really, really made good music. They also yeah. made good money. And I understand this is the music business. So they're in business. You know, they're not in, you know, they're not in any kind of a museum business, you know. So if you don't make hits, they, they get on you. But as long as you're making hits, they leave you alone. Yeah. We had Jerry Jamat on the show uh, a year oh, ago or so. Great. 
Yeah, amazing bass player. Boy, I mean, that guy's crazy. I know you worked with Chuck Rainey. Uh, Absolutely. Was there... Uh, so there's no bass player in the Rascals, if people don't know that. Uh, but on right. most of the records, there's some bass. Were you ever thinking we, were gonna, we should get a guy to be in the band and play live bass? Well, you know, as I say, organ, organ, organ has a bass. Yeah. You know, and that was the original concept. You know, let's, let's do it like this, you know. And uh, in the beginning, we were able to do that because... You know, the sonic uh, integrity uh, was mono in those days. And it was a long time ago. And then, then as, the, as the sound improved, you know, now you got stereo. Now you got separate tracks. You know, not too long after that, they became 16 tracks, then 24 tracks. Well, Arif came in one day and said, there's a, there's, there's a bass player here that would, would love to do sessions with you guys. And he works with a group called King Curtis. And I said, oh, my God, and that was Chuck Rainey. And by the time he came in and then Gerald Jamat came in, it was like, man, I can't play a bass like these guys. <laughs> That's their instrument. I can't do it with my feet. These guys were brilliant. So the addition that they gave to us, you know, was just immeasurable. Yeah. Uh, let me remind folks that Felix Cavallari is our guest, and he'll be together with Mickey Dolenz this Friday, June 3rd at the Palladium in New York City. Tell me one of the things, again, that I noticed is that there's such a huge difference between mono mixes of Rascal's Tunes and stereo mixes. Oh, yeah. Well, sure, because, you know, the advent of uh, the stereos, uh, and, and again, here where we lucked out, the, the, the gentleman who was really primarily responsible for a lot of the stereo world was Tom Dowd, D-O-W-E. I'm sorry, D-O-W-D. And if you don't know about him, Look up a documentary on him. You'll be absolutely astonished. He used to be flown down to Washington, D.C. by President Kennedy to do stereo for his press conferences. Hmm. So the difference is, you know, it's two ears. You're hearing the left, you're hearing the right, and you're hearing what basically is the center. You know, that's stereo. You know, and now we've got surround, which puts speakers behind you. But in the old days, no, there was one speaker. That's it. Everything came out of the one speaker. Okay, well, Phil Spector did a pretty good job with that. You know, <laughs> pretty good job. When you're doing the the mixes, seems like, am I right that most of the singles were mono? That's what we heard on AM radio. So did you spend a lot of time on the stereo mixes, or were they just kind of tossed off? No, nothing was tossed off there. With Tom Dowd around, nothing was tossed off. No, it, it, you had to do it twice. You know, and basically it was a learning process because, like, for example, well, you, you just said it, the radio stations, they had a mono needle, you see. And so stereo was new. Uh, the FM was where stereo came in. The FM, when the FM stations came, now we have stereo. So if you hear, like, some of the records, like, for example, when we did a stereo mix, we said, well, hey, how about, you know, when we start Good Love, we go, one, two, three. Well, how about if we put one on the left, two on the right, and three in the middle? You can make it pan to the middle. Well, okay, if you don't have the right needle, you go, one, three. <laughs> <laughs> so this was all experimental. Everything was experimental. But as I say, the talent that Atlantic Records brought to the recording studio is phenomenal. Yeah. You know, you, you talked a little bit about Dino Dinelli, the drummer, earlier. He really was different. He was special. I mean, he was fun to watch, but he's also... Like, um, you know, I, I, he's like a puppet or something. You know what I mean? He's just <laughs> like his arms well, weren't attached to his body. You know, it was just like he was amazing, you know? 
Well, that's exactly right. See, he came up in a, in a, in a, where I found him, where I met him, was in a club called the Metropole, which was, a, it was on, I think it was on 47th Street, and it was like a place where they had jazz. So basically, he was in a club where Louis Belson, Buddy Rich, Gene Krupa, you know, all, all these band leaders who were drummers would entertain. Well, it's just like Jimi Hendrix. I mean, Jimi Hendrix didn't invent a lot of those antics that he did on stage. Those were part of this, the Chitlin circuit for years and years. Mm. But basically, Dino learned from these guys who were leaders of their band and were drummers. So he put on a show besides being a great drummer. He put on a show. Well, rock and roll didn't have that yet. You know, rock and roll basically, as you went to the studio, there was a guy playing drums, you paid him, and he went home. <laughs> you know, now we had a star, a star drummer, you know, and I mean, and not only that, but he looked like Paul McCartney. So, hey, what do you, what, how can you lose? <laughs> you know, right? So, you would write a song, you would bring it into the guys. Obviously, you've got a lot of music in your head, and you had an idea of how you wanted things to go. But when you would bring that in, how, you know, what percentage of, of the good ideas came from the band? Well, you saw Paul McCartney. So, you know, like rather than toot my own horn, you know, like I say. I was the most ambitious of the lot. So when I brought that song in, it was pretty well ready to go. Mm. And if it needed anything else, it needed some embellishment from uh, Eddie's words, because his words were a little bit more flowery than mine. I got a little serious. Uh, and I'll reef to finish the touch. But that song was pretty much done when it came to the room. You know, because, you know, basically I knew what I was doing. I mean, like I say, I studied for eight years. Music is music. There's nothing magical about it, you know what I mean? Like I say, you either know it or you don't know it. And, uh, you know, based on, on, on your intuition and, you know, kind of like getting ideas, I was very inspired. I was madly in love. I was writing songs about love, 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 until, you know, that ended with how can I be sure. Um, you know, I, I just felt like this is what I was put here to do. That's amazing. You know, as I was looking at the whole catalog, first record came out, first album in 66, and then uh, Eddie and Gene leave in 70 and 71. That five-year period is such a strange time for the United States of America. That You know, oh, just yeah. life just changed. Culture changed. Music changed. Oh, yeah. How did that affect you personally and the band? Well, it affected me personally by, you know, like, you know, like just my emotions. Like, you know, we're, we're talking right now, 2022, after some pretty, pretty deadly events in our uh, country history and our world history. Uh, you know, uh, I don't know. Uh, I mean, this, this war in Ukraine is, is pretty devastating. And this, this shooting that just took place in Texas, pretty devastating. Uh, we were very tuned in. I think that, you know, the 60s people were even more tuned in than the people today. Uh, we didn't have as many outlets, you know, that the uh, Internet and the Facebooks and all that stuff give. You know, basically, uh, it hit us pretty hard, hit me pretty hard. And, uh, you know, caring about world events is just something that I feel our generation really did a lot more than the current generation because it seems to me that you know people are a little bit afraid to put their thoughts into uh, into music today because you, your audience disappears half of it goes half of it stays half of it hates you well that's nonsense you know if you take away the musician's voice you're going to take away a lot of really interesting stuff that helps 
helps people. Mm-hmm. You know, helps them through hard times. You know, a lot of times I meet people, they say, oh, man, I can't tell you I was in the hospital, man. And every time Beautiful Morning came on, I, you know, take that away from us. You know what I'm saying? And watch what happens to our world. Music is a healing force. And it's also an educating force. It's also something that is so important. But bottom line is, yes, it affected me personally very much. Yeah, I'm with you 100%. You've got a new book out called Memoir of a Rascal. Did writing yes. the book dredge up anything you'd forgotten, or was there anything you were kind of, you know, stories you'd never told were holding back until now? No, basically what happened is we did a uh, Broadway show uh, in, in 2000, 2013, I think it was 2012, uh, with uh, uh, it was called Once Upon a Dream with Steve Van Zandt producing it. And we had press conferences for those shows. We were trying to, you know, publicize the event. And what I noticed is that every one of us had a different answer for the very same question. <laughs> so I said, okay, now, now I'm starting to get confused, you know, maybe because was I, was, did Custer win? Did Custer lose? I don't know. Let me see. Hmm. So uh, I decided to write a book. You know, and th- and then what happened basically is is I felt that oh my goodness, you know, as you mentioned earlier, that there was only about five or six years of rascals. What about the rest of my decades on this planet? Should I write about that? And you know, perhaps somebody will you know get inspired, you know, to not worry about what you're going to become. I thought I was going to be a doctor. I thought I was going to be in pre med. I thought I was going to. The next thing I know, I'm a musician. Maybe somebody will get those words. And yes, there were a lot of stories that were uncovered. I try to kind of dwell on the good stuff rather than the bad stuff because every everybody who knows about divorces and stuff like that, who, who cares? Mm. You know, I had a great career and I'm very happy. There's, I, I read up that there has been some um, legal back and forth, let's call it, between members of the Rascals, mostly about how the name the Rascals should be used. Yeah. I wonder, do you miss those guys? And uh, do you do you personally want any sort of reunion musically with those guys? Well, we did, you know, we did, uh, we tried, uh, you know, you keep trying, but, you know, of course I miss those guys. I mean, these guys are like my brothers, yeah. but you know, some people like to work. Some people don't like to work. Some people are ambitious. Some people are not ambitious. Some people are not healthy. And unfortunately that's, that's, that's where we are today. Some people are not healthy. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, it was funny. Cause a couple of weeks ago I asked, uh, I mentioned I was going to be talking to you and some listeners said, ask him, you know, that was the most, the, the question folks wanted to know most. They, for some reason they want to see you all together on stage. Uh, tell yeah. me what you live in Nashville, uh, I think, or near Nashville. What do you do on a day off? What's your, or do you, or do you have a day off? Are you just a guy who wakes up and works? Well, um, I don't wake up and work, but I mean, I'm promoting this book, so I'm doing a lot of work promoting the book because, you know, the bookstores, we used to have signings. We don't do that anymore, so I'm getting that out. I I came to Nashville to continue making music, so I I have a lot of writing sessions, and, you know, I've just finished an album, which is going to be out in September. I just try to keep busy because I know when my dad retired, he was pretty unhappy, you know, Hmm. because we like to work. I mean, see, it's... I hate to say it's not work, but it's not work. I love it. <laughs> That's great. That's perfect. Uh, we talked about Good Lovin' earlier. Uh, when you heard the playback, because that was, you know, I was, I assume that was just one of the hundred covers you guys would play at the barge or whatever. Uh, when you heard the playback sitting in Atlantic Studios, did you have any idea, hey, this will be a number one single? No. No. No, no, you just, you know, 
it, you just do it, you know. And 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 Tommy Tommy Dow was behind the board at that time, and he said, "That's it." I said, "What do you mean that's it? That's it. You don't have to do it again." I said, "Oh, come on, man. We could do that better." He said, "No, you can't. You're going to have to go through me to touch this." <laughs> so you see, that's where the expertise came in because he knew the magic was on tape. Mm. See, and and that's the thing you have to learn in the studio is when to stop. It's like a painter, you know. If you're doing a, pa- a pa- painting. When when do you stop putting trees and mountains and you know stuff? Mm. In it? Yeah, and and that's what the elder people you know helped us with is okay, stop, you got it, and he was right. So when we hear good loving, is that a one hundred percent live uh, performance? I, it is. It is, to my knowledge. I mean, I, I don't know. There may have been something added, but I don't know where the hell you put it. We only had eight tracks. <laughs> <laughs> you know? yeah. right. the, the organ solo in that is such an iconic piece. I mean, it's such a, it's perfect. Is that something that you play different every night, and that's just what we had no, on that no. day? No. That's got to be the same every night. Yeah, otherwise, I, I, I have people like Paul Schaefer tell me, that's not how you do it. <laughs> but, I mean, when you were working it up, I mean, you know, did you play it different? And then now, obviously, you're stuck with that one because it's perfect. But, I mean, well, you know, was it something you had worked out prior to recording it? Uh, no, I think, you know, basically, from the first time we played that song, it was kind of intact. You know, the, the difference between the uh, cover, uh, the Olympics did it, you know, uh, was the energy. See, the, the energy, the tempo, the kind of like twist, the kind of like railroad train we had behind us called Dino Donnelly. I mean, Dino Donnelly would push you off the stage if you didn't keep up with him. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, seriously, that's what people feel when they hear that song. They hear the energy, you know, and the youth totally. and the exuberance. And, and that's, that's, that you can't manufacture that in, in, on a computer. You know, it, it doesn't work. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, aside from uh, 18 top 40 hits, five top 10 hits, three number one hits, and all giant number one hits, one of the things that I think is so important about you and um, what you leave is that your your songs have been covered by so many people, jazz people, you know, jazz singers, instrumental, pop groups. I mean, hundreds of people have covered these songs. Uh, To me, that is, that's so much more of when other people are putting their stamp of approval on you. And that must just feel great for you and for your mailbox. Well, I'm I'm so proud of that. And, and, you know, as I say, uh, one one of the best examples is uh, Pat Benatar, who is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year. Uh, did you better run? And so, you know, I thought she did a ph- phenomenal version, her and Neil, and, and uh, you know, I want to congratulate her. And, yeah, it, it's, it's always nice when somebody, you know, recognizes work. <laughs> You're very humble, I'll tell you that much. Uh, Felix Cavallari, Mickey Dolan's Friday, June 3rd at the Palladium uh, in Times Square, New York City. And uh, Felix Cavallari, music.com is the website. Information on the book, information on tours and stuff coming up. Check that out. Uh, you know, amazing songwriter, great organ player, great, great singer, great record maker. Uh, and somehow you seem completely completely down to earth am, am i wrong or is that is that like baloney or is that true that's where i live man i live on earth so do you so does everybody else <laughs> you know there's some great stories i could tell you but i don't know if they're fit for publication but you know we are all created equal here you know if uh, you don't have a plumber plumber is the most important person when you're leaking pipes right yeah you got that <laughs> help <laughs> right so I was brought up like that, and also I studied for many years with a guru who was probably the most humble human being I've ever met in my life. 
That's interesting. Well, uh, you know, best of luck with everything. And it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Really super interesting. And, you know, always looking forward to whatever's coming next. Well, thank you, sir. And I appreciate your time, Mike. And, uh, you know, be healthy. Take care. Thank you. Appreciate it. See you. One, two, three. Peter. Peter. Peter.